You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning. We're continuing on in our series in the prophets. We have, uh, we're entering into our third week, and the first week, you recall, we, we engaged the prophet Isaiah, again, from this kind of aerial good blimp view. And then last week, we spent our time in the prophet Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet, and today... We're turning our attention to the book of Ezekiel, uh, which I think by some accounts is probably one of the stranger books in the Bible and doesn't yield its fruits very easily, but we we hope to kind of um, get some sense of what Ezekiel is after in uh, the canonical book that bears his name. So let me, let me begin with prayer, and then we'll turn to Ezekiel and try to get a sense of what uh, this prophet of the exile is after uh, in, 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 this, uh, in this book. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you have brought us together again around your word. And we're mindful, O Lord, especially through the legacy of Ezekiel the prophet, that we are people who are shaped by the vivifying and life-giving power of your word. We need your word to do its work, to take that which is dead and to bring it to life again, to take that which doesn't exist and to make it so, to take a valley of dead, dry bones, and by your word and your spirit, animate them so that they are alive and free. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help the teacher this morning and those who are here to listen, to, to learn something and to gain some sense of the wonder of who you are, O oh God, from this ancient prophet named Ezekiel. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you're, if you're there in your living room or wherever you happen to be and you have access to a Bible, it'll be, it'll be worth turning to Ezekiel. In the English Bible tradition, Ezekiel comes right after the book of Lamentations. So I think it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, then Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is a, a longish book like Jeremiah and um, Isaiah are. And there's a sense in which there's a kind of soft chronology that's building through these prophets as you go from Isaiah, who's in, in effect an 8th century prophet, whose visions, of course, extend beyond that 8th century moment into the, into the exile and even the post-exilic moment. Um, but then you see Isaiah, 8th century prophet. Jeremiah is a prophet whose ministry is pre-exilic into the exilic moment when the, when the Babylonians came and, and destroyed uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And now Ezekiel the prophet is a prophet who's located, his prophetic ministry takes place within the confines of the exile itself, located now not in Jerusalem, but with the exiles in Babylon by uh, the Kabar uh, Canal, as it says in the first verse of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is a prophet and a priest ministering um, in the actual exile itself in Babylon. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They've been exiled away from their homeland, from the temple, from the walls, from, from all the infrastructure that would have given a sense of national identity to the people of Israel for so long. That's now something of the past, and Ezekiel finds himself in a crisis moment with the exiles in Babylon, and God arrests him. You see this in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Hebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So the Lord gives visions to Ezekiel, and I'll have to admit, it's hard to get out of the first chapter of Ezekiel without your head beginning to spin. He sees 
a vision of the glory of the Lord. You have angelic creatures. You have some sort of chariots that have wheels within wheels that are able to move uh, north, south, east, and west at will. And just putting together the, the language and the words and the images that Ezekiel gives us in Ezekiel chapter 1 is a bit of a challenge. So I understand why people will come to a book like Ezekiel and say, I read that first chapter and I just kind of skipped on and went to Hosea or something other. But it's, it's worth thinking about what Hosea actually sees here in the first chapter. And what he sees is a vision of God exalted in his sovereignty still sitting on his throne. It says this in verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, these angelic creatures and figures, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, the likeness of a a man. So so you see that Ezekiel now is getting a vision of the very throne of God. And as he sees the throne of God, with all of the resplendent splendor that's around this throne, he sees one that's sitting on the throne of God who has the appearance of a man. Lots worth thinking about here. But um, one one commentator that I I really like, Robert Jensen, his commentary in Ezekiel, he says, do you want to know why um, Ezekiel saw one on the throne of God who looked like a man? And the answer is because God is a man. He's been revealed to us in time, in the incarnation, in Jesus. It's not a surprise for God to reveal himself in bodily form. He does so here in the book of Ezekiel, and he will do so definitively in time in the incarnation of Jesus Christ when, in the words of John 1.14, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. We see the very throne room of God itself now abiding among humanity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus brings in his very person God's presence, his kingly status, his sovereign oversight over all humanity. He brings that into the sphere of human existence. So Ezekiel chapter 1 is, is frankly, it's fireworks that are firing off here. But the fireworks reveal to us in the middle, and think of this, in the middle of the chaos of the exile, That which was normal and expected about daily life is no longer the case. I don't go to my normal grocery store anymore. The butcher's not around the corner. I don't go to this synagogue for for teaching and worship on Shabbat anymore. Everything that I've known, my home, our land, um, the very seasons, the fruit trees that we've known before, all of that is now something that has been removed. and We're in a foreign place And disorientation might be the best word to describe what it would be like to be an exile now removed from your home and your place on the canal, the Khebar Canal here in Babylon, set apart from from home and from family. And it's in the middle of that setting, that chaotic, disordered, disoriented setting, that Ezekiel in the first chapter has a vision of the glory of Israel's God, Jehovah himself, sitting on his throne in resplendent glory with no one challenging his sovereignty as he oversees all the courses of human history and the affairs of of humanity. So it's a a wonderful, um, for lack of a better term, kind of apocalyptic juxtaposition that you have in Ezekiel chapter 1 between the chaos and disorder, the disruption of human affairs, but we certainly know something about that right now in in our current historical moment, the disruption of the normal pattern of human affairs. And in the middle of that, you get this vision of God sitting on his throne in complete freedom 
to exercise his sovereignty and his will, his order toward the redemptive end that he sees fit from his perspective. We get something very similar, by the way, in the book of Revelation, when you move from um, uh, the Spirit moving through the seven churches in Asia Minor, and you have, the, the, again, the chaos and disorder that's present in the life of the church in, those, uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And then you blink, and you're in chapters 4 and 5. And what do we see in chapters 4 to 5? That despite the difficulties and the strains and the disorder of ecclesial churchly life, Jesus is still sitting on his throne, uh, being worshipped by the angelic host, by those who have been raised to to, to him and their heavenly being. They're worshipping him. Who is worthy? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to redeem and and to be powerful and to reveal his glory in the world. So Ezekiel has that kind of sort of apocalyptic move from chaos and disorder to give us a peering into heaven itself to see that God is not caught up in the same kind of disorder that we are, even though he sees it and is in the middle of it and is ordering that to his own redemptive and good purposes. So that leaves us in a place of of, of trust. So that's how Ezekiel begins. Ezekiel begins with a bang. And then you get into chapter 2 and and the beginning of chapter 3, and you see Ezekiel's calling. And this this is, again, worth thinking about, especially in our moment. Ezekiel is called, he's addressed regularly by the Lord as the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity. Stand on your feet, chapter 2 says, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now, there's a lot to reflect on in chapters 2 to 3, but to me it's interesting to recognize that Ezekiel's call and his ability, this is so, so crucial, to hear the word of the Lord was founded on the presence of the Spirit in Ezekiel's life to hear. This is something that's very near and dear to the Reformation tradition in its understanding of the necessary relationship between the Word of God, namely Jesus as revealed in the Bible, and the Spirit of God. We don't have Spirit without Word. We do not have the Word of God without the Spirit of God. It was crucial here for Ezekiel to have the empowering presence of the Spirit of God so that he could hear and understand what it is that God is saying. If we're in a moment now, and we are certainly in this moment, I I feel like I'm in this moment myself, where we need and recognize our need to be shaped and molded by the Word of God, our prayer should be, oh God, pour out your Spirit on us, enliven us by the life-giving power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may hear your Word, attend to it, and order our thoughts and prayers and lives in accord with what we hear God saying in his Word by the power of his Spirit. So Ezekiel's calling is a calling to be a servant of the Word. And he's a servant of the word, again, in a moment of historical disorientation, disruption. And he's called to be a servant of the Lord to those who are still in a rebellious state against the Lord himself. It's a hard word that Ezekiel has to bring to the people of God. That even here, after all that we should have learned with the Babylonians and what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and our temple and the exile that we're experiencing now, we've known the judging hand of God. 
that we should have le- that should have led us by his grace into repentance but it's not the case even here by the Chebar canal in Babylon a foreign land God is identifying his people as rebellious those who are standing against God and the authority of his word so he says here in verse 7 of chapter 2 you shall speak my words to them whether they hear or refuse to hear for they are a rebellious house again Um, Ezekiel is called to a ministry of the word and to be faithful to that ministry despite the response of the people. It's not measured according to external norms of success. Um, His his faithfulness is measured by his attendance to the word of God itself and his faithfulness to deliver that word even if it's an unpopular and a difficult thing to say. So he gives a challenge here to Ezekiel. Don't be rebellious like the people that I'm calling you to minister to are rebellious. Instead, and this is, again, a great phrase in Ezekiel, open your mouth, verse 8, and eat what I give you to eat. So this is a bit of a a foreshadowing of what's about to come in this interaction that Ezekiel is having in his prophetic call with the Lord. Open your mouth and eat what I give you to eat. And when I looked... Behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, there was a scroll of a book was in the hand itself. So Ezekiel's been told, open your mouth and eat what it is that I give to you. And he sees a hand extended to him with a scroll indicating the word of the Lord. And he spread it before me, the scroll, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe, words of repentance. Think about Hosea chapter 14. When you come into the presence of the Lord, take words with you, Hosea says. What kind of words? Words of repentance. And he said to me, verse 3, Uh, chapter 3 verse 1 son of man eat whatever you find here eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel so I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and he said to me son of man feed your belly with this scroll that I may give you and fill your stomach with it and then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey incredible scene here very descriptive and vivid here Ezekiel is before the Lord called into a difficult task of bearing the word of the Lord the word of the Lord that contains with it what words of mourning of woe of lamentation words of judgment words that are calling people to repentance and he takes that the scroll that's given to him and he ingests it in other words it becomes a very part of his being uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher of the 19th century, said that when he, his desire was that when he was, was cut, he would bleed the Bible. That's a, that's a very Ezekiel kind of picture here. That we, we, we take the word, we ingest the word, we eat the word. We, and and, the, and uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book entitled, Eat This Book, based off of this scene here. That kind of full-hearted commitment to the Word of God and what it has to say so that it becomes a very part of our existence. I cannot detach myself from the Word of the Lord. I cannot detach myself from what God has to claim on me and and what he's saying uh, through the pages of Holy Scripture. I ate it and it was like honey in my mouth. So we see who Ezekiel is. 
Ezekiel is a prophet who sees the glory of the Lord revealed in his sovereign freedom sitting on the throne in the likeness of the Son of Man. And we also see that Ezekiel's primary role as a prophet to the exiles in Babylon is, a, is, a, is, a, is the role of a minister and servant of the word of God itself. He eats God's word. He ingests it. It becomes a very part of his being. He cannot exist and operate apart from the word of the Lord's constraining pressure and presence in his life. And that's Ezekiel's ministry from beginning to end. And there are hard words. The major word that I think you have from Ezekiel the prophet throughout these pages is a call of repentance back to the Lord himself. Come back to me. Ezekiel 16, which is probably one of the most provocative chapters in all the Bible, we see why it is that the people of God need to be called back. And this is a long chapter, so I'm not going to go into the details of the chapter itself, but I want to just speak about it um, in in a kind of overarching view. Uh, Ezekiel 16 describes Israel in her early existence as coming from a Hittite and a Canaanite father and mother. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, the Lord says in Ezekiel 16, on the day that you were born, your mother and your father disposed of you. In other words, you were of no real significance or interest in the ancient Near Eastern world. Your Hittite mother, your Amorite father, or vice versa, they disposed of you, didn't care for you. And you were left in an act of infanticide in the middle of the ancient Near Eastern desert, kicking and screaming in your own afterbirth with no one to take care of you. So so Ezekiel is very clear here in this word from the Lord. It wasn't your beauty. It wasn't your power. It wasn't your potential that God saw, this sort of untouched and untapped potential. No. You were an infant left kicking and screaming in the wilderness in your own afterbirth, left to the elements themselves. And I, the Lord of heaven and earth, passed by you. And I saw you in that state, and I told you, live and then, and then the prophet emphasizes it again. And I passed by you again, and I said to you, live. And there's this beautiful description of God's electing love of his people, that he chose them and set his affection on them, his life-giving power on them. Why did he do it? He did it so that they would be his own. He did it motivated by his own love and affection and self-determination to be a God for this people so that they will be a people for me, a display people before the whole world of what it looks like to live in covenanted relationship with the God of the universe. This is a beautiful scene here. Israel comes from a nothing background. God takes Israel and its infantile state and and makes Israel his very own. And then the way in which it goes on is, then when you grew up out of your infantile state and became a full-grown woman, your beauty became the beauty of, of, of renown. Think about the height of the Solomonic era where, they, where the queen of Sheba comes all the way from, from uh, Sheba to see all the fuss about what was going on in the Solomonic era. You became the talk of the ancient Near East. You became mine. I bathed you with water. I wrapped you in fine linen. I covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornament. I put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. Here you see the, 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 um, the overwhelming character of God's love for his people. I didn't just rescue you from your death. I made you my very bride and lavished on you in an an exorbitant way 
um, a demonstration of my love for you by giving you uh, uh, the goodness um, of my love and the effects of my love uh, in, your very, in your very being. Put a ring on your nose, but earrings on your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And why did this happen? Ezekiel's very clear. It didn't happen because of your own self-affirmation or self-actualization, Israel. It happened because the same God who found you as a kicking and screaming infant left alone in the wilderness to die, that same God had made you his own and sustained you and preserved you all the way to the moment of your international renown. For it was perfect through the splendor, this is crucial, that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And then the scene takes this dramatic turn. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore, it says in verse 15. This is similar to the language that we read in the book of Romans, where it said that they desired the, creature, the, the creaturely gifts more than the gift giver himself. We want the gifts and the goodies, the creaturely goodness of this world, but we want to deny the creator who gives it. You trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore. And then it just goes on. To this whole scene here about, and really it's, it's um, if you read Ezekiel 16 closely, there's no way you can read it without blushing. I mean, in, in effect, what Ezekiel says is, you, you, weren't, you didn't even become a normal prostitute. A normal prostitute gets paid for her services or his services. But you weren't that kind of prostitute. You were a prostitute that paid others to act with you in immoral ways. And here's a crucial turn of phrase to explain what's at the core of this um, idolatrous and prostituting ways that we see with ancient Israel. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. You didn't remember those days. You had forgotten Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his very little book entitled Temptation, says that temptation is often, doesn't often manifest itself when we yield to it as, as active rebellion against God, but forgetfulness of his very existence. You did not remember the days of your youth. This is a crucial phrase here in the book of Ezekiel, a call to remembrance, because to remember who we really are, to not lose track of the fact that we really are the prodigal son off in the far land who need the forgiveness of the Father himself so that we can be restored and renewed. And that's not an identity, by the way, that's locked in some time past before we became a Christian or when we had a bad moment back at that day. Rather, that, un- that understanding of ourselves is crucial and central to, our- to the entire facet of our being. It's who we are. We're poor in spirit. We're those who are in need of the Lord himself. We're those who remember who we are as sinners standing before a righteous God in need of his forgiveness. In the language of our liturgy, miserable offenders. And they had forgotten. They didn't remember anymore their story. They didn't remember the narrative that that defined and shaped how they viewed themselves in the world. And what was their narrative? Their narrative was, we were in Egypt, enslaved to the Egyptians with no prospects or hope for the future. And yet God, the king of the universe, 
Jehovah himself heard our groanings and our cries and he came and he delivered us and redeemed us and claimed us again as his own. That's who we are. So you have this movement here about uh, in Ezekiel 16 that's again a call to repentance, a call to remembrance about who the Lord is. And there's a trust in the book of Ezekiel that God has the ability to restore. Even in the face of human rebellion and unfaithfulness, God has the ability to restore. Remember the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel sees this valley of dry bones, skeletal remains all throughout the valley. The Spirit of God comes on those bones. They crackle to life. Sinew begin and muscle begins to form on their bodies, then their skin, and then they're animated and they become alive again. Ezekiel reveals to us the character of God to take that which is seemingly dead on the surface of things and by the effective power of his Holy Spirit to bring life and to bring renewal, restoration, and the gift of repentance. To repent and to turn back to the Lord, to even want to do that is a gift of God's grace that's empowered by his life-giving spirit itself. If you find yourself, if I find myself in a place where we desire to desire him again, where we desire to be in communion with God again by the Spirit in Jesus, that itself is an indication of the kindness of God's Spirit at work in our lives to fan the embers of the flames of our hearts and our lives into full-fledged flames once again for Jesus and for his kingdom. So what kind of restoration are we looking at here in the book of Ezekiel? Let me just give you um, a few things. Number one, Ezekiel is calling the people back to the, to the singleness of heart. Um, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, says this. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. That's always language about idolatry in the prophets. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And here's the covenant formula. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. Singleness of heart. Singleness of devotion. This is opposite of a heart that's given to idols and detestable things. It's singleness of heart. I don't know about you. I find myself yearning for that kind of existence. We are scattered in so many different ways with our affections, with our priorities. I feel it myself. That to claim something like singleness of heart and purpose in our existence really seems a far cry from the reality of the warp and woof of our daily lives. And yet, and yet... Here Ezekiel the prophet calls us to the singleness of heart itself so that all of these other things that vie for our attention, that are necessary just for the maintenance of our human creaturely existence, all of those things are brought into view such that they themselves are uses that are there to draw us to the singleness of our purpose, which is the worship and the enjoyment of God and his kingdom forever. 
We pray for that. We, we pray for the Spirit of God to do that work in our hearts and our lives so that all the things that we do, all the disparate activities of our lives that we're involved in can be brought together in singleness of purpose so that all of them are fitted and joined together like spokes around a wheel. And that wheel is focused on what? On the centrality of God and his purposes in the world as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A heart of flesh a real, live, beating human heart. What it means to be truly and fully human, to flourish as a human being in this world and in the world to come is to, is to have a heart that's singular in its focus on the glory and the enjoyment of God and the advancement of the gospel in the world. And how does all this happen for Ezekiel? It happens by the pouring out of the Spirit of God. How do we remember what God has done for us? How do we remember, which again is not just calling something to mind, but actively participating in our history as if it is what it is right now in the current moment. When we come to the Eucharist table and we receive the body and the blood of our Lord, we're participating in the very life-giving body and blood of Jesus himself. How do we remember How do we enter into that mode of being? Ezekiel says, it only happens by the initiative of God himself, by the pouring out of his his spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. Says this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all that I tell you, all my rules, my law. The spirit of God is poured out onto us and the effects of the spirit of God, and think of this, in in causing us to have hearts of flesh with a singleness of purpose in the service of our Lord and the glorifying of his name and the goodness of his gospel. What's the effect of that? The effect of that is that our desires become aligned with God's desires and they they no longer work at cross purposes one with the other. My desires by the power of the Spirit become, become aligned with God's desires. And that does not happen by us pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. It happens by us looking long and hard at how God has in time established, in the language of Ezekiel 16, his eternal covenant with us. How has God established his eternal covenant? By revealing to us who that likeness of a man was back in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. It's Jesus the Christ coming to time living our lives for us, dying our deaths for us, and raising us into new life in him by the power of his spirit so that our affections and our will, those very things that make us human beings, can flourish to their fullness when they're brought back to him again and again and again. I pray for that this morning, this morning, for you and for me. Pray that God would come to the valley of dry bones in our own lives and that the spirit would rush on us and in rushing on us, we'd hear the, the clanking of the, of the skeletons of our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives. 
and that they be brought to new life again by the Spirit so that we can have singleness of purpose both individually and as a congregation here at the Advent, loving God and his ways and his purposes in the world, rejoicing in the goodness of what God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ so that our desires and all the disparate things that we do in our lives, so that our desires are brought into line naturally and fittingly with his desires for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Oh, Lord, let it be. And if it is, we will know that it's happened because the Spirit of God has rushed on our hearts and our minds, both individually and corporately as a church. So, Father, thank you for these words from Ezekiel the prophet. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, rush on us, dead bones that we are. Give us life again by by the power of your Spirit so that our affections may be singular toward you. And that all the good gifts and all the challenges and even the pain and the sorrow of this life are brought within view, Lord, of the singularity of our purpose, which is to glorify you, to enjoy you, and to see the advancement of your gospel in the world. Oh, Lord, do that work, I pray, in our congregation. Do that work in our city. Do that work in our homes and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.